0: What is life without hope? The French philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre give his, gives his opinion in No Exit, a play that he wrote. And this play was his vision of hell. He had three condemned people enter a nondescript room that didn't seem torturous. But they were sentenced that to be there forever without sleep, and without eyelids. And start imagined that over time, all of their secrets, their, their guilt, their guilty secrets would come out, and th- nothing could be hidden, nothing could be changed, everything was seen, and in this forced intimacy, that would torment people. And the most famous line of, of his play is, hell is other people. But the moral of the play was this line of doom. He said, you are your life and nothing else. You are your life and nothing else. In thinking about Sartre's early imaginary nightmare, Edmund Clowney comments, he says this, that Sartre rejected Christianity, but his play invites heart-searching. Who wants to say that he is what he has been rather than, he, than what he meant to be or what he hopes to be? Sartre implies that hell begins when hope ends. Sartre reminds us of how desperately we need hope. While there is life, there is hope, we say. But if hope dies, what life can remain? Now, I don't believe for a moment that hell is other people. But hell beginning when hope dies? That sounds about right. Our world desperately needs hope. So many people around us live hopeless lives. And in the face of extreme poverty and endless wars, civil wars, famines, earthquakes, hurricanes, volcanoes... Political unrest, racism, rampant abuse, and crime, it's really no wonder. Right? And that's just on the grand scale. Our personal lives are are filled with torment too, leading us to, to pessimism, depression, despair, and more. People really go through hell on earth and they wonder if things will ever get better. Christians, on the other hand, do not actually need hope. And that's because we have hope. We already have hope. It's not not just some shallow, hopeful, wishful, I, I, I hope life will get better. But a firm Confident hope, based on what we believe to be a certain future. If we don't have hope, really it's more just of us recognizing what we've already been given in Christ. I believe that that Christians should be the most hope-infused, hopeful, hope-inspiring people in the world. Why do I think this? Well, let's open God's Word together and see what He says. Please turn to 1 Peter 1, if you haven't already. 1 Peter 1. We began this a few weeks ago. Today we finally return to this letter, which was written to Christians in a very hard place. If anyone had reason for pessimism, it was these people to whom Peter wrote. They were a a fledgling church, scattered in in small clusters all over the world, facing suspicion and mockery and hatred, hostility from their communities, who the communities thought they were crazy to worship a dead Jewish guy. Even families and friends would ostracize them, marginalize them, and they often faced way worse than that from the powerful Roman state, which tended to criminalize and fiercely persecute early Christians. It would have been very easy to lose hope. To see things as only getting worse. To see Rome looking invincible. And to see Christians get burned and eaten. And wonder why Jesus hadn't come back yet. And why hadn't he come and put things aright? Was their faith actually true? Or was Jesus really just some dead Jew? It's against this backdrop that Peter pens his letter. And in his introduction, Peter freely admits, Yes, you are all exiles. You're exiles. Exile isn't fun. But God chose to put you there. You're elect exiles. He chose to put you in the place that you are for a reason. And we read this in verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. And we all need that. We all need his grace and peace on an ongoing basis as we seek to live in this world that can be so hostile to our faith. And right after he said all this, Peter's first word is a word of incredible hope. Incredible hope. Let's pray that we can grasp this same hope for ourselves this morning because I believe it is the same hope that we have. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look into these words from your word this morning, I pray that your spirit would come, convict hearts, encourage hearts, help us draw near to you in this time. May we be sensitive to what you have to say and ready to act. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen In Greek, the, the language that this was originally written in, verses three, all the way down to verses 12, are one super long sentence. I'm going to artificially divide this sentence into not two, but three parts. All right, only going to verse 5 today. Kind of breaking some preaching rules here by not giving you the whole complete passage all in one dose. But I think that verses 3 to 5 do make one coherent and crucial point for us, and it's too good to not dwell on in some depth. So I'm telling you right up front, though, the main point for this week and the next couple may be a bit repetitive. This is all one sentence for Paul, but that's okay, I think, because it's one point that we need to hear over and over and over again. Alright? Now Peter had obviously caught wind of the hostility and trials that these believers were facing as he references them a number of times in his letter. And we might expect such a letter to start with sympathy or condolences or prayer. Something like I'm so sorry to hear what you're going through. Or, my heart is grieved for the trials you're facing. Or, or, you know, I pray every day that you're going to stand strong. But instead, Peter begins with doxology. With a passionate exclamation of praise. Look at verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ! Exclamation point. This is not how you'd expect a letter to persecuted Christians to start. Blessed be God! Praise be to God! May He be blessed! Join me in praising Him! But this is going to frame the entire following passages, if not the whole letter. Praise God. Why? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Here's the simple application for all believers. No matter what time you live in or where you live, we should praise God for our living hope. should bless God along with Peter in the early church because we have the same hope. Praise God for our living hope. Now It's actually, it might be surprising, but it's very appropriate for Peter to begin with what's essentially an exhortation to worship. Because, the reality of what God has done for his people should overshadow any other reality or circumstances we find ourselves in. It really should. All of our lives in every season, he is still God. And we have reason to praise. It's not a denial of real life and our troubles, as we're going to clearly see next week. It's a statement that God is greater than our troubles. That he's got a plan. And that no matter what else might happen to us, this is true. That according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now Peter uses language there that Jesus used in John 3 in his chat with Nicodemus. When he talks about being born again, we are reborn, given new lives. There in John 3, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That was a new picture, new metaphor to use. And Nicodemus was confused by this picture. He asked, how can grown people get back inside their mother's womb? So Jesus clarified that that he wasn't talking about a physical rebirth, but a spiritual rebirth. And that it's a birth that happens by God's power, not our own power. Even here in 1 Peter, the emphasis is on what God has done, not on what we do. Tom Schreiner says the focus is on God's initiative in producing new life. No one takes any credit for being born. It's something that happens to us. Right? You, you can't take any credit for being born as a baby. Right? You, you needed a father in the process. You also likely needed a, a doctor's or a midwife's help. But let me tell you, as someone who has witnessed childbirth, your mother <laughs> deserves uber credit for you being born. Now, think about birth, though. Think about what we have received through our birth, by our birth. We have received much of our identity, much of what defines us when we are born. Things like your gender, male or female, or your ethnic or racial identity. You were born black, white, Canadian, Filipino, uh, mixed, whatever. You were born that way. You received your first citizenship, based on where or to whom you were born. You were born into a certain socioeconomic class, life situation. You even received a lot of your innate propensities from your biological parents. The apple doesn't usually fall far from the tree. Uh, But so when, when Jesus, and then Peter here, says that we are born again, we're born again, it's a sweeping concept. Christians have have spiritually become new people by a new birth. No longer am I just white, American-Canadian, middle-class male. I am more than that. And if you have believed in Christ, you are too. Actually, my new birth is meant to trump everything else and to transform everything else about me. As Karen Jobes comments, that Christians have a new identity and a new citizenship that redefines their relationship with society and transforms their identity and character. Let me ask you this. Are you defined more by your first birth or your second birth? Are are you most impacted... By your cultural background, your gender, your skin color, your family heritage, their tastes, their their beliefs, even their political stances? Or are you impacted most by who Jesus has changed you to be? There are far-reaching implications for this. I believe into every corner of our lives. He doesn't obliterate our, our identity, not at all. He redeems it. And changes it. The, not, the least of which of these changes includes the daily attitudes in which we live our lives. Do we tend to live in, in worry? In fear? In anxiety? Maybe in despair? Or do we have hope? Because things have completely changed for believers. According to God's great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Now, hope is really an immaterial thing. It's a a mental attitude or confidence. So it doesn't literally live. But Peter says we've been given a living hope. What does he mean by that? Well, he's basically saying that that our hope is real, it's legitimate, it's ongoing, it's enduring, as opposed to a dead hope. Maybe it's easier to understand what a dead hope is, right? A hope that has dissipated, it's disappeared. In the Star Wars movie franchise, if you, if you take them in chronological order, they spend three whole movies bringing us down to a depressing anticlimax right, where people you thought were heroes have turned into villains, where all the power resides in this mighty evil empire, and it appears that all is well and good in the universe is about to collapse, or it has collapsed. But without giving anything away, there's a reason the fourth movie is called A New Hope. Because, and there's a reason that Disney just spent an additional $250 million last year to film in another movie explaining where that new hope came from. Well, how did it come to be? And why people spent over a billion dollars to watch this new hope spring to life. Even in the final lines of last year's movie, the question is asked, well, what have they given us? And the answer, they've given us hope. That was the turning point for them. The moment that hope came alive. The turning point for us? Peter says it was the resurrection of Jesus. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Essentially, hope is alive because Christ is alive. And as it says elsewhere, Christ is our hope. You could say that the the birth of hope was at the birth of Christ, which we celebrate at Christmas. But when Christ died, it must have seemed like hope literally died. Think of how how Peter must have felt watching the man that he had placed all of his life, all of his hopes, all of his dreams on die. But three days later, everything changed the moment that Christ rose from the dead. Hope was reborn for Peter when he saw Jesus living again. See, if Jesus had stayed dead, if Jesus had stayed dead, all of his promises about a, a new birth would have meant zilch. If Jesus stayed dead, it would mean that sin is still our master, death is still our end, and hell is still our destiny. If Jesus had stayed dead, any hope that we have for eternal life would be pitiable and sad and stupid. I mean, 1 Corinthians actually says as much. But Christ didn't stay dead. He conquered death. He won the victory. And thus everything changed. And thus we now have hope. Hope that our sin is a defeated, disemboweled enemy. Hope that we can be forgiven and justified and never condemned again. Hope that death will only be a brief interruption to endless life. Hope that we too will be resurrected one day. Hope that this fallen world is not all there is and hope that that there is another world, a new heavens and a new earth coming. Think about it. It is a total reversal of Sartre's you are your life and nothing else. Complete reversal. Our lives really should be marked by an undaunted hope, a certain outlook on the future. As Clowney says, Peter writes here of a sure hope, a hope that holds the future in the present because it is anchored in the past. Our hope is anchored in the past. Jesus rose. Our hope remains in the present. Jesus lives. And our hope is completed in the future. Jesus is coming. So, so many of our worries and our fears and our doubts could be traced to believing that that is not true. That changes everything. So praise God for our living hope. However, hope is something that may still seem vague to you. So what are we hopeful about? What does our hope consist of? What does it look like? We can see a couple answers to this in the next couple verses. The first thing I believe we'll see is that His mercy secures eternal Blessing. This is what the hope looks like. His mercy secures eternal blessing. Our hope is an eternity and God will bring us great blessing throughout eternity. That's why we should praise God. Verse 3 already told us that this all came about because of God's great mercy. And if God didn't have mercy on terrible sinners like us, all that we would earn is death and judgment but according to his sheer mercy he rebirths us to a living hope for eternity according to his great mercy and verse four is a description of what we're to be hoping for so according to his great mercies causes us be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the, de- from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. In the way that you are shopping and storing up gifts to give to other people at Christmas, God has bought something for you with Christ's blood. And he is storing it up for you in heaven until the day that you will receive it. What is it? It's an inheritance, he says. An inheritance. But now, normal inheritances are something that we receive when someone else dies. And since we don't know when they'll die, we don't know when we'll receive it. And we may or may not know what our inheritance will be in advance, but a will is written up to determine who receives what, right? As for the inheritance that... God has secured for his children, it's somewhat equally vague. right? Unless Christ returns first, we will receive it after a death. But not someone else's death. After our own death. We don't know exactly when that day will come for us. We know it'll come. We also don't have a very clear picture of Of exactly what our inheritance will be. We're given hints here and there in the Bible, but really only shadowy hints of of lasting wealth and land and homes and feasts and meaningful responsibilities and joy and glory. We know that this is going to be a culmination of our salvation, right? When we are justified, sanctified, and glorified fully. Perhaps God doesn't tell us more because heaven is really unfathomable to us. Maybe he doesn't tell us more because we really don't need to know more. Maybe God doesn't tell us more because he knows that all of the blessings that await us would distract us from seeing that the greatest inheritance awaiting us is really God himself. The best Peter can describe our inheritance is is by using negations of what we know and experience, right? This is an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Everything that you own can either perish, be defiled, or fade, or all of the above. Your home, all of your possessions, can perish in a fire or another disaster. All your fancy technologies will break down and collect dust one day. Your beloved pets won't live forever. Sorry. Your designer clothes can be defiled. Stained, shrunk, stretched, torn, worn. The money that you accumulate can disappear overnight. Happens all the time. Even your personal characteristics, your good looks, will fade as you grow older. Your health will fade as you enter your golden years. If it doesn't, sooner. Everything can be lost here on earth. We get countless insurance policies and security systems and cloud storage to to try to hold off that loss. Right? But you can't insure against everything, and you will lose it all when you die one day anyway. If you place your hope in the things of this world, your hopes will be crushed one day. We have got to place our hopes in something stronger. In something that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Kept in heaven for you. And really, this inheritance is, is something entirely different than everything the world hopes for and pursues now. And it is what the Christian should count on. And it's a foregone conclusion. Alright, notice though, Peter never tells us, so, so keep working hard to earn your inheritance. It, No, he's talking like it's already earned for us. According to God's great mercy. The only thing Peter tells us to do is to praise God, and by implication to keep hoping in him. And it is... Now, you may think something along the lines that all this sounds good and fine, this sounds cool, but... I'm never going to make it there. Because you know well how much you struggle and how much you fight to stay on the path. You may be discouraged in your faith. And you wonder if you're going to make it. So even a a call to eternal hope like this can be a source of worry for you, of concern. it makes you think about the end. And you are fearful of what they, that day is going to hold for you. I think Peter's next words were written for people just like you and me. Look what he says. We've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And get this. Who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So, what is the hope that we should praise God for? First, we should praise Him because His mercy secures eternal blessing. And second, His power secures us until then. God's power. Secures us in our faith until the day that we see him. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God's mercy without God's power would be mere sentimentality, They're really a fool's hope. On the other hand, God's power without God's mercy would mean total judgment with no hope. But combine God's mercy and God's power and you get something incredible. Peter says that it is is God's power that guards us. It guards us. Now imagine if you knew... That someone out there wanted to hurt you or even kill you. They threatened it, you got a death threat, whatever. What would you do? Under those circumstances, what would it take to make you feel safe? Maybe you take, you go take some self-defense classes or martial arts, get yourself a weapon, maybe some mace. Another thing you could do, you could hire a, a personal bodyguard. Someone who is bigger and stronger than you, whose job it is to keep you safe. Maybe that's not enough. Maybe you'd need more than that. Maybe you'd want a, a private security detail, a security force, multiple people, like the Secret Service for Amer- American presidents, or the, an elite RCMP team. You know, a bunch of guys in suits, sunglasses, got earpieces, concealed weapons. Would that keep you safe? Do you feel safe then? Maybe so. Personally, I'd want the Avengers. <laughs> but think about it what if it was God Himself guarding you from threats? The Almighty Creator. the lord of hosts commander of the angelic armies of heaven that who peter says guards our souls until christ returns does that make you feel safe the word guarded there in verse 5, can also be translated as shielded, or protected, or garrisoned. It's a word that was often used to describe sending an army of soldiers into a city in order to protect that city from any foes that would march against it. Our faith is constantly bombarded by a number of different foes. Our own flesh tempts us and tries to trip us up. Our world and its godless cultures seeks to undermine our faith and our worldviews. And we have a, a real spiritual enemy, the devil, who has an army of his own, which constantly berates us with temptations and doubts and condemnation. If we are in our own strength, confide, our battle would be losing. But those who are saved by Christ, by definition, those who are saved by Christ, by definition, do not confide in their own strength. We rely on the power of God. We have to. We rely on the power of our God to guard us from the dangers that we face. Now this doesn't mean that we'll be protected from all physical peril. Not at all. The very next verse in 1 Peter talks about being grieved by various trials. Tom Schreiner asks, How does God protect believers? We know that he does not exempt them from persecution or suffering. Believers may suffer agonizing pain, both physical and psychological, because of their faith. Peter must have meant that God preserves believers so that they will receive their final inheritance and experience the joy of salvation. Essentially our inheritance and our salvation are guaranteed and there should be no doubt about them. And that's because it doesn't depend on us but on God. I love how Clowney describes this he says not only is our inheritance kept for us we are kept for our inheritance it would be small comfort to know that nothing could destroy our heavenly inheritance if we could lose it at last and if it were all up to us we would lose it I'm certain of it that reminds me of a well-known quote by John MacArthur if I could lose my salvation I would I can't keep my salvation, and neither can you. God must hold on to it for us. I know that some of you here really struggle with this, really struggle with assurance of your salvation. You're afraid that your doubts are too strong for your faith to be real. Or you're afraid that somewhere along the line you lost your faith. Or that you will one day. You worry that you've you've done something bad enough that precludes you from ever being saved. You doubt that, that God could love you and forgive you since you really can't forgive yourself. I'm going to carefully say something in love to you. This is not judgment of your faith because you're totally right about something. You're not good enough. Neither am I. But here's the thing. When you struggle to have assurance of your faith in these ways, I can near guarantee you that your eyes are on yourself, not on God. Say that again. When you struggle to have assurance of your faith, I can near guarantee you that your eyes are on yourself, not on God. Because when your eyes are focused on yourself, you'll inevitably doubt your salvation because you're bound to fail. But I heard you today. Fix your eyes on the cross. Fix your eyes on the cross. And see the certainty of God's love for you. Set your sight on the empty grave. See the certainty of God's power to save. And fix your eyes on Him. On his word. What he says here. says you are by God's power being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. See, see, setting your sight on the right things is really how you can start building assurance of your faith in your life. You can't lose your salvation. Not because you can't lose your salvation, but because God can't lose your salvation. And we are guarded by him until the end do we have a part to play sure Peter says that God guards us through our faith who by God's power are being guarded through faith and that might quickly make you worry again but wait what if my faith isn't strong and I just ask this, this what is your faith actually in what is your faith in is your faith in your faith is it in yourself And your ability to stay strong. Or is your faith in him? The one who conquered death itself. If your faith is in him, even the smallest faith is a mighty thing in the hands of an infinite God. And if your faith is not in him yet, what are you waiting for? Anything else you trust in will fail you in the end. Even yourself. But this invitation is open for you today to receive His mercy, to be born again to a living hope. And an eternal inheritance will be secured for you as you are secured until then. So I would urge you, even in your hearts now, to make Christ your Lord. To believe in your heart that he died and rose again. To resolve to forsake the sins that have separated you from him. And all of these glorious words that we've read can be true of you. Nothing you've done kept Christ from going to the cross and bearing its shame. And so... Nothing can keep you from His mercy today outside of your refusal to receive it. And when we do receive it, our place in His love is eternally secure. Don't believe me? What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Those are words to live by. Because they place our hope in Him not in ourselves or in anything else. As Peter says in verse 5, God's salvation is ready to be revealed. It's already accomplished. It's It's just biding its time while God patiently waits for many to repent. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Let me assure you as we conclude, that last time is coming. Are you ready for it to come? The last days may already be here for all we know. But if your faith is in the risen Christ, I believe you're ready. And you are prepared to face anything that is thrown your way. And if your faith is in Him, you have hope. Hope for today and hope for tomorrow. Because through Jesus, our hope lives and breathes. So let us pray, sing, find many other ways, countless ways we can to to praise Him for this. Shall we? Heavenly Father, we come to you today and we throw ourselves at your feet. Our hope is empty without you. And our hope is eternal because of Christ. Lord, we thank you. Praise you. We pray now that our lives would reflect this hope to all those around us. We need your strength. We need your power. We need your help to do this. And so we rely on your spirit now. In Jesus' name, amen.